And the first thing the Chinese have been focusing on is to influence the faculty members. So in that time, American academic, American professors and the teachers did spread the idea of democracy and freedom in China. The soft power does is to aim at the next generation of Americans, to influence the entire generation, to inject the idea of Chinese socialist system or what the Chinese call socialism with Chinese character. Why did money for American universities to teach Chinese? Because language is important. So even when Chinese was separated, their language, the written language remained the same. If you are a scholar, you study China, but you can't get into China. It's almost a death blow to someone's career. I think American government should pay more attention and they should not hide behind the so-called freedom of speech. Namaskar. Hello and welcome to P Guru's channel. I'm your host, Sri Ayer. Joining me again is Sasha Gong, and we're going to talk about the educational institutions in the United States and how these have also been infiltrated by China. As always, the book Red Handed is our reference, but we go far beyond that, especially in this episode. You don't want to miss this. Please do like this video so that it can go its fullest possible viral effect. Thank you. And let us welcome our guest of the day, Sasha Gong. Sasha, namaskar and welcome to P Guru's channel. Hi, thank you so much. I'm happy, so happy to be here again. And uh, I have to make some statement to, to begin with. Actually, yes. we talk about, we use the, the book Red Handed, but the education section in, I'm not going to use that that much of the book uh, for reference if anyone wants to read it, please read it. It's very interesting, but it's focused on your Yale and uh, some, to me, it's sort of a minor incident. So I have reorganized the content and I'm speaking with my own experience since I was a professor for a few years. So education is something I do know. Well, viewers, this is one video you got to see. I'll tell you uh, from a first generation immigrant such as yourself, I'm telling about myself, Sasha. When we used to go through this roller coaster ride of bringing your children up, every parent's wish was that their child get enrolled in Ivy League, maybe Harvard. Everybody dreamt that their child will one day go on to become the president of the United States. So there's this rat race. I'll give you a simple example. When my son was applying for you know, universities, MIT came visiting to the Silicon Valley. And, and they were set up in a hotel in, in the downtown of uh, Santa Clara, which is like the middle of the Silicon Valley. And, and they figured that you know one room, about 200 people should be enough. 800 people showed up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. I think you're also describing the Chinese community. Oh, everyone. I mean, this was like... Yeah. All <laughs> immigrants. Yeah. It was a rush, mad crowd there. We were lucky we went five minutes early, so we actually got standing room. And and then when we saw the crowd, is that, uh-oh, they're going to be like maybe five students are going to be making it from here to the uh, MIT, and, and this crowd is unreal. But that is the kind of competition that exists 
for some of these name brand colleges such as Harvard, Ivy League, mm -hmm. Yale, you name it. So we are going to say something that should maybe make our parents pause and think, is it all worth it? So take it away, Sasha. Exactly. And actually, uh, I still have almost every day parents, Chinese parents chasing me, asking me to tell their children how to go to Harvard. I said, well, if possible, please don't. <laughs> I spent seven years in, in Harvard, and uh, I know in a way, I was in, in Harvard between 1987 to 1995, and uh, I actually witnessed how the Chinese infiltrate Harvard and especially the China studied area. So today's episode, we, uh, if you look at the title page here, I put the title as the ccp.edu. In fact, you know, the Chinese Communist Party had such influence in, the in America high education influenced the in, uh, entire generation of uh, young people and uh, faculty members, academic. I actually want to start, let's go to the next slide. Here you go. And the next slide, we need to explain one key word here called soft power. It talked well. people start talking about soft power after the Cold War, especially in the past two decades. The word soft power was quite popular. America talked about soft power and the Chinese talk about soft power. But when America talk about soft power, they talk about, say, Hollywood is soft power, our, well, freedom, democracy, soft power. But when China talk about soft power, well, the, when the word came out, the Chinese immediately focused on government operation. So when the Chinese talk about soft power, they're talking about the government doing stuff to influence others. That's what soft power. They're not actually talking about Chinese culture and how great the culture or, well, the music or any other product, cultural product. They are actually talking about, let me put this way, soft aggression. Well, the Chinese communist system. So it's very important to understand well, the context when the Chinese talk about soft power. So in China, actually, lots of scholars, lots of government officials talk about soft power all the time. They also told people from the state, from Earth, we only use soft power. China is a peace-loving country. We have soft power, we don't, and we have military power, but we prefer to use soft power, which in a way so far is true. And uh, we can see, well, let's focus on high education. What's that soft power try to do to, to the others in the world? Well, we are not even talking about elementary school or high school. That would be other chapters. Today, let's focus on high education because high education, when you get the high education, you will also get uh, the high school and the elementary and other education. So the Chinese understand it very well. And the first thing the Chinese have been focusing on is to influence the faculty members. When we trace back to history, in the 1970s, 
almost no American academic could go to China to study because the Chinese would let, not let them in. What the Chinese really worried is what all these foreigners might spread uh, the idea of democracy and freedom to China. So starting in the 1980s, lots of, when I was in school, for example, in the 19, late 1970s and the 1980s, more and more American professors or American teachers went to China. My English teacher was an American girl who, who was a graduate student at Berkeley and went to China to teach English. So she was my professor and later she joined the State Department. She was an, of, an official in the State Department for many years. So in that time, American academic, American professors and the teachers did spread the idea of democracy and freedom in China. In that time, the Chinese, actually Chinese students like me, we were like sponges. We absorbed uh, all these great ideas, noble ideas to us, and uh, we actually loved it. And that was, let's fast forward to the 1990s and especially to the 19, to, to the 2000 after China joined WTO. More and more American academic people, students, professors went to China. And at the, that time, the more I observed, the more I realized actually these people, unlike the teachers before, unlike the professors before, who were so much enthusiastic to democracy, teaching students democracy and freedom and new ideas. These were professors who started to praise the Chinese system. The more I look at it, the more it's actually, it confuses me for a while. And then later I realized why I'm going to explain. If you look at the purpose of China's soft power, the first thing they did was to influence the American faculty members and uh, American academia. And second, what the soft power does is to aim at the next generation of Americans, to influence the entire generation, to inject the idea of Chinese socialist system or what the Chinese call socialism with Chinese character into American, a whole generation of American students to tell American, Americans and young Americans especially that the Chinese, how grand the Chinese system is, uh, how great that system. Put this way is that the new generation of Americans now, when you talk to them, they have lost their previous generation's view on socialism, on communism on the Chinese system. And now if you talk to them, lots of young students would tell you according to what they learn in classroom, the Chinese system's not that bad. So China, the soft power, China used soft power to shape a whole generation. And how, I'm again, I'm going to explain. Oh, you have a question, please. Yeah, Sa Sasha, uh, my book, um, Who Painted My State Purple, um, there, there's an interesting passage there where head of uh, China will be giving a lecture saying that, oh, 
now that I have figured out how the elections are being done in US, I can use this yeah. as a point to tell people how good the Chinese system is. So it was meant yeah, as I a satire. I read that part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I read that. That's, a, that's exactly what the Chinese have been telling Americans how great that system is. It's real. The whole conversation looked very much real to me. Uh, and viewers, um, I wrote this book before I met Sasha, before I met Elmer. <laughs> In fact, with my first meeting with Elmer, that's when I gave him the first version of my book. So I just want to place it on record. I All the omissions about the assumptions are all mine. If Sasha had edited it, it would have been an even better book. Please continue, Sasha. Oh, thank you. I enjoy that book a lot. And please, if you, well, if you're listening, please buy that book. Thank you. And, thank um, you. and also the next thing, the soft power, after you influence the faculty members and the students, and through the students and the faculty members, what you what happens is to influence America's public opinion. Professors write, and the professors educate students. Students become professors and journalists, and they write, and uh, they write. Well, they write about China, and that their view also reflect in public opinion. So China has been influencing our public opinion for decades. And we go to the next slide. Yeah, the Confucius Institute. Lots of people heard of it, right? I think many people in Congress raised questions about that. Confucius Institute was set up about 530 Confucius Institute around the world. Uh, in the United States, there are about 103 and something like that. I think a few of them have been closed in the past few years, but I'm not sure. Well, I don't know how many have been have been closed, but the existence of Confucius Institute really raised eyebrows of many Republican congressmen like uh, Senator Rubio, Congressman Smith. They mentioned many times and uh, during the Trump administration, the White House paid attention, and uh, finally the White House ordered to uh, label the Confucius Institute as a foreign mission. So it's a very important step. But before that, I think the, that was in the 2018 or 2019, something like that. But before that, the Confucius Institute had been operating in the United States within our major universities for a decade and a half, which created enormous imprint in our education system. What is the Confucius Institute? What's that, what does it do? It started when, you know, what, after China joined WTO, the Chinese leadership determined some impact in uh, through high education system. So the Chinese had one within the government system. There was within the education department. There was a small bureau. The bureau in the name is called Hanban, which means it's a short term of Chinese language office, office to promote Chinese language, something like that. 
and in Chinese is the Hanyu Ban Gong Shi. So the purpose of that, that small institute was, well, at that time for many years, was to organize Chinese language education to foreign students within China. So they have universities, like in my school, Peking University, they also have foreign students studying Chinese, and they even have a major university teaching language. In that time, uh, the Chinese are teaching hundreds of thousands of young people around the world, teaching English, and that's the main government office managing it. What's the importance of language? Language is everything. The Chinese actually, at first, the, the Taiwanese, long time ago, after using a lot of American money, also taught Chinese in Taiwan. And the missionaries, they, for example, Mormons. The Mormons have some great language institute and uh, they have missionary services in Taiwan and all the young people who went to Taiwan learn Chinese. And uh, CIA also provided money for American universities to teach Chinese because language is important. The way you speak language, a way to influence the way you think, right? So what happened is that the Chinese, the Communist Party realized, you know, let me put some example. If you're from Taiwan and from China in the 1980s, you're talking, even you speak the same language, Mandarin, you're talking very differently. The word you use, the sentence, the phrase, the structure, the style, because communists, the Chinese communists reshaped people's language reshape the way people think. So when I first met people from Taiwan and said, hey, what do you mean by speaking this? What do you mean by this? It takes some time for people to understand each other. And uh, the Chinese government understood, communists understood how important shaping people's language. So they try to shape a foreign scholars' language by teaching them English. That's that happens for many years. And then what happened is that uh, after China joined WTO, they realized actually they could make some advance by teaching language abroad, worldwide. So hence the Confucius in Institute. And when you have, they set up the Confucius Institute, China has a very clear aim in their mind to shape whoever interested in China, shape their language, shape their thinking, and then make connections. So what the Chinese did was to provide money and uh, teaching staff to different universities. It's a grant. So far, the Chinese are providing, Chinese government providing about $10 billion US dollars a year to teach Chinese worldwide. That's where the funding of, of Confucius Institute came from. And um, they're teaching language. The language they use, a little background I also need to explain. The Chinese characters, Chinese language expressing characters. And after the communists took over in 1949, in 1950s, 55, 56, 57, the Communist Party reformed the Chinese characters. They simplified lots of 
classic Chinese. So they call it simplified Chinese. If you read the Chinese, say the Taiwan still using classic, and uh, you compare simplified and classic, simplified Chinese simpler. That's why they call simplified. Simplified Chinese, the purpose at that time of simplified Chinese is to teach more people to read and write. But very soon, the conflict between characters, classic and simplified, became a cultural war. A cultural war be- between the Chinese overseas, in Taiwan, in Hong Kong, in Singapore, and elsewhere, uh, and the Chinese in the mainland. And for many, many years, when before China opened up, most foreigners who, sp- who study Chinese used, when they study in Taiwan and uh, American schools, taught students who study Chinese with classic Chinese. Because when you understand classic Chinese, it's much easier to understand. Simplified Chinese is almost automatic. But if you learn simplified Chinese, you'll have trouble to understand classic Chinese. So that, that is the difference. And uh, the Chinese, when the Confucius Institute start to teach Chinese, they are still teaching simplified Chinese using textbooks from the mainland China. I actually just finished a long study of, the, of textbooks in China. Doesn't matter what it teach, the communist ideology is embedded in every piece of text in the textbooks. The Confucius Institute uses the Chinese textbook and simplified Chinese to quickly spread the language and the ideology among people study Chinese, not in China, but in the US, in other foreign countries, in Europe and in Latin America, the entire new generation, female who study China, were shaped in many ways by the Confucius Institute. You have clarified a few things that used to go through my mind. I used to do software in the 90s. And uh, mm-hmm. primarily, you know, I would come down to Taiwan mm-hmm. whenever there was a new product. And then, you know, you go through a training session. One of the also the one of the other things that I would do was to sit down with the technical uh, translator, the person who would take this thing and translate it for uh, Chinese. And he would go through this. He'll scratch his head. Mm-hmm. You know, should I do it in classical Chinese or traditional Chinese? And then they'll always go through this question. I don't know what the answer was, but he would tell me, look, Chinese language is more descriptive, like a tree. He would show me this, 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 this. And and that day I remembered, but once it came out, it all evaporated. My question, uh, um, Sasha, is Mm -hmm. what did the Confucius Institute teach? Simplified Chinese or classical Chinese? Simplified. Simplified Chinese. They use the mainland textbook, which is all simplified. You know, uh, many of viewers may not know this, but, you know, China uh, casts a larger, big shadow across the Southeast Asian countries. You go and take a look at who runs the economy in Indonesia, who runs the economy in Philippines, who runs the economy in Malaysia, who runs the economy. I can go on. These are all Chinese expatriates who went like waves. You know, every time there was a suppression of some sort happening in the mainland, they would, you know, take whatever they could, go there, put down roots, 
they become you know powerful in fact even australia too so yeah. so all these people probably learned in various versions of chinese right i mean you're saying that even taiwan to china there is a fair amount of difference oh yes the chinese diasporas before the uh, 1990s actually mostly used classic chinese not simplified but is the since the 1990s lots of mainland chinese move abroad so they brought simplified chinese and plus the the confucius institute and they spread simplified chinese and the most importantly lots of whoever wants to do business with mainland china you learn chinese you learn simplified chinese and, and and on top of this i'm assuming that all these are dialects of mandarin uh, no actually uh, the chinese language you see I, i'm a, i'm half cantonese half mandarin so i speak right, both right right it doesn't matter if you if you whatever dialect you speak uh, the chinese language like uh, the first emperor qin uh, first emperor of qin he took power in uh, 221 bc what he did was that well he sort of standardized the written language in china so it doesn't matter whatever you speak you know a cantonese and mandarin may not understand each other but they all write the same it's the most important tool in chinese history to keep china mostly unified So even the when Chinese was separated their language the written language remained the same. So simplified Chinese was invented by communist by the CCP government. It's mostly actually uh Chinese has like uh, about 20 30,000 characters. Uh Chinese the communist party only simplified like 50 or 56 50 something characters but those are very common characters used in you know different sentences so they fundamentally changed the way of how the written chinese which was you know for 2000 years remained the same um you brought up a very interesting point so you said that emperor qin ascended in 221 before common era and he mm-hmm. introduced this uh, script in 210 bc did i hear you correctly 220 i think 221 uh, he took power in 221 bc and uh, a couple of years later he actually standardized the language see there, the there there's a very important uh, data point because about 50 years before that say 270 uh, bce mm-hmm. there was a great king that ruled india called emperor ashoka and his yeah. uh, his pillar is still there today and and so what he did was he was the governor of what is modern day pakistan like westwards like there used to be a great university called takshila or takshila mm-hmm. it's also called takshila and and this was the predominant university in the whole world at that mm-hmm. point of time and he standardized two scripts one that mm-hmm. went from right to left and one that went from left to right and mm-hmm. these formed the basis for 
many of the modern day languages that are in use in everything below the Himalayas. You start from, you know, Arab, Israel. These are all from uh, mm -hmm. right to left and, and everything else, Indian script, even Khmer, that is the basis for Cambodia. It was called Champanagari. And, and even that draws its inspiration from the same script. It was called Brahmi in that time. So very interesting. And, and during that, you know, a few decades, people decided that they needed to standardize the script with which they were going to write or read languages. Please continue. Yeah. I know they're going a little bit farther away. It was too yeah. striking a data point for me to miss. Please go ahead. Yeah, but actually that's one interesting historical fact I can't help, but uh, the Chinese write different from most nations, you know. The Chinese, traditional Chinese was, was written from upside, up, down, and from right to left. It's, but your, well, the pen stroke is from left to right, but right. the way you put it, because China in that time, they use, they use bamboo or bamboo or sort of a strips. So they write in one strip from, from up to down and they put that there and they, uh, write another one. So it came from the right to the left and from up down it's kind of interesting anyway <laughs> absolutely you know viewers if you know japanese you'll have this thing also in japan uh, i used to travel about 20 25 years ago in japan mm -hmm. and and someone who's you know a japanese person friend of mine told me that many books you know the published books they write <laughs> talk right. about and 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 yeah. anything published by the government or vernacular newspaper that is from left to right because the the americans came in after second world war and and tried to standardize yeah. it because it made you know printing easier and so on and so forth so same thing very, the, very japanese in, the japanese took that from the chinese and two yes, thousand years ago anyway so same <laughs> thing it's the same culture anyway uh, well let's quickly finish the confucius uh institute um it's very widespread and the, who are the teachers the teachers are all sent by the chinese government so they have a mission the teachers were sent abroad with a mission to spread china's belief to spread the ideology so let's go to the next slide this is crucial uh, uh, the chinese how the chinese would i talk about the chinese uh shaped uh, influence our faculty members our academia how did they do that and the first thing uh, if you look at how china influenced the faculty members and influence academia how this is how and uh, if you google the word chinese influence and uh university you will see first thing would pop up uh, university grants. According to the Trump administration education department, since 2013, China gave American universities over $1 billion. And that's a very much underreported number because the Trump administration asked universities to report gifts over $250,000. And university said it involved too much manpower, whatever, you know, mumbo jumbo, they could not do that. So 
This one billion dollars is a very much underreported number at first, and uh, all this this gift from China, they are not gift. They are gift. They are grants with conditions, but the grant China grants conditions is very clear. You have to study. You know, either if you are in social sciences and or humanities, you have to be pro-China. If you are not pro-China, you would not be able to get any grants. And uh, for science, well, you have to work with China. If China give a university, say MIT, a very large grant to do a joint program, that means China wants your technology, and it was gift great prices. So lots of universities. Uh, Kind of uh, by by such grant、uh, grants, I have to say my alma mater Harvard is the one who took most such grants. So that's one way China influenced the state. Think of it, and academic grants in all the 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 way of how academic grants work is if you have grants. Uh, faculty members then can take sabbatical leave and、uh, do study and、uh, publish more. Remember, American university has one very very strange rule to me: teaching is secondary. Most important, the way you know、uh, the means to get you tenure, to get you、uh, to get you fame, and、uh, you have to publish. Doesn't matter. You know,、uh, whatever you publish, you have to publish and、uh, publish in all these reputable magazine magazines.、Uh, doesn't matter if you have readers; they don't care if you publish. So when you publish, you need grants, you need to research, you need research associate research. You you need help for especially for science for for scientists. You need lab funding. You need all this. So the Chinese understand when you give funding gifts, it's usually with very loose financial or accounting conditions. You can do this, and they don't care much. But you have to be pro-China. So that's grant and the students' tuition, which is a very major income for American universities. For American high education, you know, in the past few years, Americans, the number of American students are actually decreasing, because you know we have we have also have a population, you know, birth problem, and it and it looks like fewer people wants to go to university, so universities are expanding and they heavily rely on foreign students. Rely on their tuition, and also we all know in、um, our state universities, great state universities, in-state students don't pay a lot of tuition, but foreign students have to pay full tuition, which means three or four times more than in-state students pay. Right. So in 2018, according to the Education Department, China sent over 369,548 students to the U.S. If you think of it, you know each one in on average, each one spent 
fifty to seventy thousand dollars. If you go to Ivy League, you spend more, so a hundred thousand, say seventy thousand dollars each. That's a lot of money. It, it simply say that's a lot of money. It's a lot of money for universities, and universities have to some sort of try to tiptoe around and not to offend China. So sometimes in many issues when、uh, regarding China, I always feel all universities are sort of a walk on eggshells. They're so careful, and they're not very careful. They they, they don't care. You see, that's where real power lies. Remember when the, when Trump was elected, all universities I. I would say ninety-five percent of universities, well, went into a depression. <laughs> so, <laughs> faculty members never hesitate to criticize or to attack、uh, the conservatives, especially Trump. But they always think again, and or mostly decided not to do it when there's some China-related issues. So that's one of the reasons, and、um, the one of very important cause of China's control of faculty members, which was also least mentioned, was China can grant or deny access to China. See, anyone, you know, I can I can't get a visa to China because the Chinese thought I was too obnoxious, <laughs> and. The, For faculty members, if you, especially in social sciences, if you study well, you're pro-China. Not only you can get funding, you get access. The Chinese invite you to China. They work with you. They provide you with forums. They do all the nice things, academic, and they also pay very、uh, handsome fee for speeches. And if you are not that friendly to China, they would not even give you a visa. A few famous professors, for example, first professor Andrew Nathan at Columbia University, who studied the Chinese democracy movement, he could not get any access to China. And Professor Perry Link of UC Riverside, who was in Princeton. And、uh, he criticized China. He could not get access to China. Just think of it: if you are a scholar, you study China, but you can't get into China. It's almost a death blow to someone's career if you are a China specialist, and especially for the young generation、uh, of academia. If you criticize China. You can't get. You are in all sorts of trouble, and America government cannot help you. Your university can't help you, and they may blame you. So, say because of you, we could not get this funding, that funding. And if you are pro-China, you have a lot. You have opportunities. You have access, and、uh, you have funding, and you. They they pave the way for you to get your tenure. So many cases I know, you know, when especially you know people choose PhD dissertation and what to do that well, offending China is not a good idea. So I actually witness where the not so friendly China scholars, young scholars who 
could not get any future in universities. It's a very harsh reality. So wow. uh, let's, yeah, let's go to the next slide. Next slide is topic is on the news a lot. So I don't think I need to talk too much because I don't need to elaborate it that much because you know, you, you see, if you want to know more, you can just read in the news. And um, Chinese espionage, China has been doing espionage for, to the US forever. But in the recent years, China rely on espionage, especially espionage through universities and research institute to gain technology to get ahead. So what we see is that the industrial espionage is very prevailing. And I have no intention to criticize Chinese scholars here because I was one, but you know, in a way, China set up a lot of mechanism, institutes and organizations to promote cooperation between Chinese American scholars and the Chinese government or university or other entities. Say if you're a scientist, you came from China, you speak Chinese, you, you, you study some fantastic technology, the Chinese would offer you a lot, money, research funding or whatever for you to work with them. And even America, say, think of it, uh, NIH, a government agency, and uh, ask NIH how many of their uh, researchers work with China. In this COVID, we under, well, we suddenly saw that Dr. Fauci and uh, all these NIH people are actually working with China and give them funding, get their funding, and get personal opportunities. So if that doesn't alarm Americans. I, I don't know what would. It's very alarming. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh, yeah. it, uh, Sasha, one, one just quick observation and I'll let you have the floor mm -hmm. again. To this day, we still don't know how COVID escaped from a lab. At least to some extent, everybody now agrees that it escaped from a lab in Wuhan. But what people don't understand, don't still know, is how it did that. Was it through some animals that they were experimenting and perhaps they were trying some things on them? They didn't see any side effects. Did they, these animals just, they were left loose. They went into that market and got sold there. We don't know. Or if it was like, uh, I think uh, Elmer has explained this, that in one of the premier Wuhan institutes, there are two floors. The world can only have access to one floor. The other floor is for military research. Nobody's allowed to go there. So this continues to be a mystery. And it is more so now because China's vaccines are not working. We have this strange situation in Shenzhen. They had a four-day lockdown for one half of the city. Then after four days, they're going to open up that and lock down the other half of the city. And, and believe me when I say it, this is going to spread to Hong Kong, Shanghai, Beijing. I mean, they are in a real throes of a problem. Uh, and, and Mr. Fauci, Dr. Fauci is still not explaining what he did, that gain of function research. 
a large portion of Shanghai has been locked down in the past few days. I actually, in a way, one thing I don't find any credibility so far is China. The Chinese intentionally sent out the virus because if well, if China intentionally sent out the virus, it would be in some foreign places in or in some remote place would not be in a big city like Wuhan. That gives them all sorts, of, all sorts of trouble. The Chinese vaccine now, at least the government published that 29% effective and uh, for six months. Now six months passed for most people, it's not effect, effective. Anyway, so China is now in big trouble with or the whole world is recovering after Omicron, especially we are we are in herd immunity. Well, at least I don't I see fewer and fewer uh, masks in my neighborhood. So the espionage, of course, is also military. And um, one thing, at least according to the recent cases we see, we realize, and I personally know some cases, many. Chinese military officers disguised or lie in their application as scientists, as students, and came to the United States and study here. And, well, the picture here you see was the Harvard scientist Lieber, who you know it's not only it doesn't only it's not only limited to Chinese Americans, but also you know non-Chinese. At this Harvard case shows the head of the chemistry department. So we see espionage and um, we see China also stealing data. The Chinese data is now a very major source for China's wealth because China is building its uh, economy based on big data. Remember a few years ago during the Obama time, the Chinese actually stole the entire database of the federal employees' personal data. And so far, I don't see anybody got punished for that. And that's how the Chinese operate. I think the Chinese now is stealing data like crazy. And uh, we are not doing much on this. And also, well, I would say people talk about, I was a conversation with some American experts a few days ago. My view is that espionage in this new era has been changed. The essence of espionage. Before, one CIA guy told me that you have that you have no idea how much time and money and sometimes life we spent on knowing what the Soviet leaders like. But now you can find out everything from internet. So espionage, in one way, collecting information is less important. The more important part of espionage, the new espionage war, is to inject their inferences. They inference you, and uh, that's the new espionage game, in my view. The next slide actually uh, just summarized uh, first one about the faculty, mind control faculty. I actually already talked about how they use access, use funding to control the faculty. One other phenomena is less, less known by American public. 
the students. We talk about like uh, 380,000 something students are now studying in America. And uh, the report shows there are party organizations among these Chinese students. At least one such party organizations uh, was exposed in UC San Diego. And uh, in many other universities, what I know, this party organization exists. Of course, you know, only a, a few of them are exposed. But judging from what the Chinese embassy, you know, Chinese embassy here having uh, what annual ceremony and stuff all the time, Chinese New Year or National Day or other celebration, they invited tons of student organizations in the state to attend those. In my neighborhood, there are many universities, judging from the students attending, you could see, you know, their party organizations exist in many universities, which by the US law should be illegal, but they do exist. But what they do, not only they control the students, they spy on students, and whenever there are so-called anti-Chinese activities, all the students' organizations controlled by the party members would go out to attack whoever dare to criticize the Chinese government. As recently, we have seen like uh, people from uh, human rights activists from Tibet, from the Uyghur region, and among the Chinese, whenever they go and give a speech in universities, they are attacked. And when professors criticize the Chinese government, they are attacked. So this such attacks happen very frequent in the past few years. I think American government should pay more attention and they should not hide behind the so-called freedom of speech. This a government, Chinese government, uh, intimidating activities. They intimidate human rights activists through all the students' organizations that destroy our academic freedom. Let's go to the next slide and the last slide. Last but not least, we also should pay attention to activities organized within China. Within China, you know, when Chinese students in my time, when, well, we were just happy to get in fellowship and came abroad. But soon you came outside, you say, okay, I'm done with the Chinese government, right? It's not the case now. The case is China has built uh, an industry to recruit students and send them abroad. Lots of them use their private money. Most of them actually have money. Them, but the Chinese government also establish organizations, Chinese Communist Party or Chinese Communist Youth League and others before they, the students leave China. And uh, also many foreign uh, organizations, foreign companies also went into China and working with the Chinese government to recruit and to organize such activities. And one organization I want to mention here is Kaplan University uh, Education. The reason I know that is it's very odd connection. The owner of Kaplan University is a guy named Donna Grant. 
Donna Graham is the son of Catherine Graham, who owns the Washington Post, of course. And、uh, Donna Graham sold Washington Post to Amazon's、uh, to Jeff Bezos, and、uh, he started this education institute around the world to recruit students、yeah, from other countries. And China is the main operation. Well, he had hundreds of millions of dollars of business in China. He works with Chinese party schools and government party schools to recruit students. I can't make it up. His wife,、uh, Amanda Bennett, was the head of Voice of America. Was my boss. It's a very, very strange relationship because Amanda Bennett, after he took over, took over that position. And she she actually ordered we got to have balanced news, balance, 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 which means government agencies like Voice of America must give fifty percent of the voices to pro-China voices. It's a very strange. Well, I think I can't say they're strange bedfellow there, but it's a very strange, just very strange relationship. Anyway, but the United States government and the American people are not paying much attention to this. That makes me feel very uneasy. You're absolutely right. Thank you so much. You've been talking nonstop for an hour or so. Viewers, the most important takeaway from this is, like what I said in the beginning, that many want our children to go to Ivy Leagues and other schools. You may want to do a little bit of research about the amount of penetration that has happened, because you like it or not, your children, you know, go from your home, they go somewhere else, and you, they come back with a totally different view of the world. And then you will get challenged on every line. It becomes a little bit of a challenge. I can tell you that. Thank you very much, Sasha, and we are going to have more such episodes. This is a very comprehensive job that the CCP has done, and I look forward to the day when China is going to break up into five parts. And I'm hoping and praying that you won't have five different countries espionaging on U.S., but instead there will be more of a, a democratic move where they say, "Okay, we need to change ourselves to be adjusting to the new world reality." Thank you so much, Sasha, and as always, viewers, please like, share, and subscribe to our channel, and do not forget to click on the bell button. Namaskar. Thank you.